That was powerful. A song to tell those trying to escape. And for those of us metaphorically escaping, whatever. Keep your lamp trimmed and burning. If I were a fire, I'd burn. If I were a woodcutter, I'd strike. But I'm a heart, and I love. If I were a fire, I'd burn. If I were a woodcutter, I'd strike. But I am a heart, and I love. That's um, the author of The Last Temptation of Christ, the Greek author, he is imagining what Jesus is saying to St. John the Baptist in their conversation. And Jesus is taking his stand, his courage, keeping his lamp trimmed and burning. When I first arrived at this church four years ago, Hope Unitarian, Unitarian Church, I was accused by a group of people of being universalist. (laughs) And I was was caught off guard by the, the fear and the venom behind the accusation because it wasn't, I was surprised. It wasn't a label I used to describe myself at all. And at the time, Hope Church was suffering from strife and grief and a group of church leaders had left in frustration, and members remaining and deeply committed to hopes enduring through that crisis were looking inward and questioning the church's values and mission. And despite, despite completely drained batteries, the church was doing what all who've felt rejected do, they were looking carefully at themselves. They were going, what roles did we each play in this distressing storm? And how can we make sure it passes? And what systems and structures allowed this to happen? So naturally, the newly hired minister was under intense scrutiny. (laughs) I'd been through, uh, I had not been through the normal, lengthier vetting process that a new minister would get. Hope was without a minister, and they were discouraged and tired, and the board read my packet of sermons and recommendations and la, 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 and decided to try me out for one year. One year. In normal times, the whole congregation would have been in on this whole process, and it would have been lengthy the way we only can make it lengthy and include everyone and try and get consensus. (laughs) Colleagues advised me not to step into this world of hurt and pain. And it was wise counsel, but it was made from afar because I saw all the possibilities during the initial interviews I clearly saw behind the fear and anxiety I saw this deep river flowing fast of love and passion so often we can't view ourselves clearly 
yet others can immediately see to our core. And I could see the essence in this church that the outsiders advising me with all their wisdom could not. They only heard the scandalous gossip and knew its missteps. But I could see this heart beating firmly. And it's what newcomers now frequently comment on, this loving welcome of the church. They can tell. It just shows. But months later, not living up to the dreams of some, I was hissed at and called a universalist. (laughs) The term was meant as a damning slur. And it was like that moment I've heard black friends and people of color and others describe the first time they're called nigger or ape or wetback woman. I won't use other terms. And I was taken aback because it wasn't a religious label I had applied to myself. The naysayers were applying a historical term to me, and I didn't identify with that past. I called myself Unitarian Universalist because you are my people. I identify with a religious community agreeing to love alike, but not always think alike. And I rely on those seven principles as inspirations and boundaries. But I am a heart, and I love Love, all forms of love are described in our seven principles. And I'm thinking of them not as a straight line, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but as a full enclosed circle. As a short-handed, when I link the first principle with the last, I find this endless circle describing love. Every person, every last one of us, from complete stranger to child of your loins, has inherent worth and dignity. That's the first principle. And then you attach it firmly to every sentient and non-sentient matter in our cosmos. Our seventh principle calls for recognition and respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we're a part. So imagine this spectrum of love described in our seven principles as a, as a gold wedding band. Something we say at our wedding services. We talk about it being symbolic, precious, valuable, and eternal circle. And all the demands of our principles are inscribed by that circle, by that enclosed shape. Conscience is in there, search, encouragement, acceptance, truth, meaning, justice, equity, democracy, Elizabeth mentioned, liberty, and peace. All our values are linked together. For a more utilitarian metaphor, let's imagine this circle of love and our seven principles as a rubber band, also round. It only works when all seven are joined together and working together. But, ah, 
there's room to grow and stretch, adjust, take a new shape, make room for newcomers. You have a new idea. There's room. I call myself Buddhist because I study deeply in that tradition. I take daily vows, and these vows are like the seven principles. They create the same enclosure of love. They insist on keeping an open heart and an open mind. And they require working to alleviate the suffering in myself, in you, in all. These vows are translated both in our our gray, navy, whatever you call that hymnal. It's in our teal hymnal. And they go. May all beings be happy and create the causes of happiness. May they all be free from suffering and from creating the causes of suffering. May they find that noble happiness which can never be tainted by suffering. May they attain universal, impartial compassion, free of the worldly bias towards friends and enemies. That last line always makes my heart stop. It's an enormous challenge. It takes courage. We have to be free of the worldly bias towards friends and enemies. It removes any possibility of sentimentality or weakness from the description of love. You, me, we, and everyone are asked to be free of the worldly bias towards friends and enemies. We are swimming in worldly bias. We are drowning in us versus them. You are in and I'm out. You're wrong, I'm right. You've got power, I don't. You live over there. I live over here. I believe this. You believe that? I sunburn, you don't. I'm sexually attracted to men. You are sexually attracted to men and women. We are drowning in worldly bias that divides us along artificial, impermanent limits. But love has to stretch. My Facebook feed is the digital version of the worldly bias towards friends and enemies. Love must stretch, but I am a heart, and I love. To love without the blinders of worldly bias means to claim a love that encompasses creation, to love only the beautiful and perfect is a worldly bias. Danny and Annie's love from our visual hymn is love lasting through decay and death, through monotony and change. To only love people you know 
and understand is worldly bias. We get bogged down in the hurt and mistakes others make. We get bogged down in the hurt and mistakes we make. Constrained by worldly bias, our love is not this stretchy rubber band, but a tight, sharp crown of thorns, a piercing ring of barbed wire. How can we love the criminal, the insane, the greedy, the abusive, the oppressive, the stupid, (laughs) the misguided, the immature, the rigid? I can only tell you how I try. And mind you, I fail miserably, regularly, but I try and try to work my way to loving free of worldly bias. First, when I see myself most clearly and honestly, when I see how I am capable of every single odious, deadly behavior, I can begin to stretch my love and compassion to all others. I have lied, cheated, stolen, yelled, and worse, confessions later, at one time or another. And at each grotesque moment, I was doing my best. I was doing the best I could do. Looking back, I see all the ways I was selfish and ambitious or immature or needy or grasping. Worldly bias towards myself and my friends and my enemies was fully, fully operational in each of those moments. Every soldier in battle has moments of seeing themselves clearly on the other side of the war, holding a similar weapon to protect family, village, notion, nation, ideal. I am both soldiers, always. Second, when I recognize I'm capable of learning, then I have to grant the exact same potential to every human being. I have to discard my notions of being unique, better, different. I'm a human like every single one of you and every other homo sapien. And I can learn from my mistakes. Again, don't get bogged down in the fact that some of us, some of us, are such slow learners. (laughs) There are some areas I don't know if I'll ever learn. I keep hitting my head. No one learns from their mistakes in the same way or at the same pace. And death cuts every single one of us short from learning every lesson we have to learn. Others are so damaged by inside and outside forces, we can't imagine areas they might evolve and change. Let me be clear, I'm not naive saying we can't hold others accountable for their mistakes and unimaginable harm. I'm saying every human has the potential 
And our own worldly bias keeps us from seeing this potential. We all have this rubber band, this heart, this heart muscle of love that can grow and evolve and expand and become limber and flexible in ways we've never imagined. And I believe this human loving capacity is universal. (laughs) Which brings me back to being called a universalist. Because historically, the term originally described a minority that were pushing back against the dominant American Christianity. It had a precise theological meaning at the time. Early in our country's development, the universalists were the small town counterpart of the seaboard New England Christians. Universalists were the working class, the less educated liberal people who had a firm grasp of a truth. And in a formal declaration they made in 1803, their declaration of faith, they renounced that all all the Christian notions that there's just an elect few, they understood that the forces of the world included every single person, including those cool kids. (laughs) The theological fine points are less important than their declaration that God worked to restore the whole family of mankind to holiness and happiness. They're referring to the afterlife and an imagined hell. It made no sense to them that a loving God would damn anyone, anyone, to eternal punishment. But his notions of a supernatural place called hell fall away over the centuries What remains in universalism and lives on in us and in our Unitarian universalism is the notion that we are heart. We love universally. So those hope members may have been right. They saw what I couldn't see. I'm not a universalist in the historical sense. My reference points aren't Christ nor what happens to us in the afterlife. Like Unitarianism, Universalism was changed by the Humanist Manifesto to incorporate reason and reality. And it was changed by the hells on earth we managed to create in World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Iraq, collapse of the World Trade Center, minority liberation movements, income inequality, and more. So a modern universalist stance is yoked to science and all sources of wisdom. There is no single creed or formal definition except in the echoes of the name. Universalism calls for seeking the unity in the universe. Universalism calls us to accept if we were fire, we'd burn. If we were woodcutters, we'd strike. But we are hearts, always working to find the courage to love. We start out born with our rapidly beating, pulsing rubber band. 
like all muscles, if it gets needed oxygen. And it gets a regular workout. It expands and grows. And worldly bias really is the same as being a couch potato. It is emotional and intellectual laziness. So I accept the label, universalist, guilty as charged. May it be so. We give away our plate every Sunday. This month it's going to our partner in education, MacArthur Elementary.